When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Local post offices in villages and small towns, they are the centre of their communities. Four. You know, it's show business, it's not show and tell business. Three. America has these periods of absolute self-lacerating insanity. Two. You just like Gregory Peck, don't you? Bit dishy. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's a John Lewis nightmare, or is it? The Westminster Village is fixated on who's paid for the Downing Street flat renovation, the comings and goings of Boris Johnson's courtiers. On Planet Normal, we're more concerned about whether lockdown will really be lifted on the 21st of June. There are growing signs it may not be. Sensible precaution or Midsummer Night's Nightmare. Joe Biden's been in office 100 days. Is the new leader of the free world a maestro magic grandpa or a political dud? And does anyone care about the Oscars? Apparently not. The Hollywood mega gongs, awarded last Sunday, drew a much-diminished TV audience. But we'll start with lockdown. You're angry, Alison, fuming that the 21st of June may not turn out to be the summer solstice of celebration that we thought... You've said in your Telegraph column that from that day on, you won't be wearing a mask. Your ire sparked by two recent moving encounters. That's right, Halligan. I love the way I'm always fuming. I mean, you know, maybe maybe quietly outraged. Look, where are we now? We've been promised, uh, well, allegedly promised that uh, we'd all cry freedom once we were vaccinated. M. Hancock. Matt Hancock, exactly. And as of today, there are 40 million people in the UK, co-pilot, who are living in areas where the COVID virus has basically gone. So, you know, I think any normal person, any person with any common sense would think that there should be no need for any more measures after the 21st of June. But Gordon Rayner, our fantastic chief reporter, reported in The Telegraph that indeed these measures may be spun out after that magic milestone, talking about masks still, talking about social distancing in hospitality. We know that hospitality is saying it cannot break even if those measures are still applied in restaurants and pubs. And of course, the vaccine passport. The good news, Liam, is I think they have backed off the vaccine passport for pubs after justifiable outrage about that. But I think they're yeah. looking at it for events. And that High Court action, the Hugh Osmond, Sasha Lord High Court action is about to be judged on as well. So maybe that influenced the government's thinking too. We've also had this week them saying that one shot of the vaccine, which you and I have had, not only does it protect us against serious illness, it also does have a very high effect on retarding transmission. So as I said, I think any normal person would think we're we're coming up to, you know, a period when it's warm, weather, the virus will essentially have gone. So no, I'm not going to wear a mask after the 21st of June. And I'm not going to obey any silly rules whose effect is to prevent us returning to the life we had before the 23rd of March last year. But as you say, this is an important distinction. As you say in your piece... Alison, of course, we'll put the link to the piece in the show notes of this podcast and the link to Gordon Rayner's piece, um, which we'll describe more in a minute. As you say in your article, Alison, this is not about some principal thing. It's a balance of judgment, isn't it? Because you now feel that people who wear masks are more selfish than people who don't wear masks. What I wrote about was a couple of encounters I'd had, in fact, with young women where one was um, a manicurist who was saying she was having to wear her mask between 10 to 12 hours a day. 
was making her feel very ill. And she'd had a rather well-to-do lady client. And when this um, young woman, Sophie, said to the lady client, I'm so looking forward to not having to wear the PPE after the 21st of June. And this woman said, oh, no, it won't be safe. I think we should carry on all the measures for another two years. And this young woman staring at this customer thinking, you know, you are obviously she can't say but you are so selfish and then there was an encounter I had with a young mum who had had her baby Teddy during lockdown Liam and this little baby has really not met anyone except his own parents and Sophie joined a a, a mother and baby group and they went to a mum's garden the other day with the babies but it was horrible weather so they all decided to lightly break the rules and go inside to the house. And they put the babies down in one corner of the room and the mums were having coffee in another corner. And Sophie said that the babies didn't make any sound. They sat there in silence staring yeah. at each other. Yeah. So this was their first sight of fellow human baby. And we did have a big report out this week, Liam, talking about speech delay in young children the word gap has gone up from, they think, 29% of children arriving in, in preschool who were struggling with language and vocabulary up to about 58%. Because in those crucial, crucial early years when so much of what you'll know for the rest of your life in terms of speech and social skills, kids aren't able to teach each other because little kids haven't been able to see other little kids. No, and nor have they been able to see faces outside. So I suppose what I'm saying with the mask, it's not just me being, you know, sort of woohoo, libertarian, let's tear off the mask. It's literally thinking that the older people and and people who are nervous have got either got to start being a bit braver on behalf of other people so we can return to normal life so children and and other people can see faces. You know what? I'm I'm fed up of reading someone's expression from their eyes. I want to see people smiling with their mouths. And these things matter hugely. And I don't think the government has got a leg to stand on. It certainly hasn't got any scientific evidence. And and Boris said to us, you remember, it was the data, not the dates. And the data is overwhelmingly positive now. I mean, this week on Tuesday in Wales, there were 33 cases of COVID and zero deaths, all deaths in England and Wales. I know you've been keeping an eye on this, but they have been under, the deaths in England and Wales have been under the five-year average for six weeks. (laughs) We're doing better than we normally do. So actually... For me, June the 21st, that will be the time when I'll say I'm not going to go into any um, cafe or restaurant or bar, whatever, that requires me to wear a mask or to do anything that I wasn't doing when I had my life. And as you say in your piece, um, if if shops or restaurants do ask you to wear your mask, you will shop or dine elsewhere or I will stay at home, you say. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot of practice at staying at home lately. <laughs> It's going out that needs some work. Um, well, yes. well said. I think it's worth just talking a little bit more about Gordon's excellent article. He puts up there five reasons why he judges a sort of scoop of analysis from his sleuthing around Westminster Whitehall, looking at all the official numbers in the way that a good reporter does. The government scientific advisors want, quotes baseline measures, that social distancing, to continue for another year. As Gordon points out, councils are hiring COVID marshals to start work in July. So if there's Mm. freedom, why do we need COVID marshals? Some of those councils are advertising one slash two year contracts. Social distancing could remain this one metre plus idea that ministers are looking at. That would be disastrous for pubs, restaurants, theatres, you know, any business that needs capacity crowds. And I think what's also interesting, as Gordon points out, Now, the FA Cup final, Alison, Mm. I know you're avidly waiting for that. It's in your diary. (laughs) It's on the 15th of May, which, of course, is before the 17th of May when we're allowed to dine indoors Mm. at restaurants and go have a drink in a pub. FA Cup 15th of May, that will be 20,000 in the crowd, not 90,000, which is when the new Wembley's capacity. But Wimbledon is the 28th of June, which is after the 21st of June, Mm. of course. But Wimbledon have said they're going to have only a 25% capacity. So that's interesting. Even after, you know, Cry Freedom Day, Wimbledon, world-ranking, blue-ribboned 
event, mm. a massive British export, it's only going to be at 25% capacity. So there are these signs that 21st of June is not going to be the 21st of June that we thought it was going to be. Can I say a name to you, Liam? Susan Mitchie. I know exactly what you're going to say now. Go on. So this woman, Susan Mitchie, who is obviously very influential on SAGE, I think she's one of the behavioural scientists. Listeners will have seen her cropping up on the news. She seems to have a permanent slot on the Today programme. She certainly does. And she is sort of seems to be a zero COVID fanatic, but also now revealed she's a she's a member of the Communist Party. And this woman and others like her, our government, a conservative government, is taking the advice of people, certainly Susan Mitchie, who are anti-capitalism. Now, this is your area more than mine, Halligan, but might it not suit Susan Mitchie to not have the free market economy running as it should? Might keeping everything closed down be ideologically pleasing to her? And, and, and it does bother me. I mean, just coming on to another story of the week, actually, which is tied in. There's been all this hoo-ha about Boris on the ropes, hasn't there? You know, the Prime Minister with, you know, various bits of what Keir Starmer calls sleaze. But there was one thing in this Dominic Cummings, who now is, you know, coming out of the shadows and getting his revenge for Boris claiming that Cummings had uh, was the chatty rat in some leak about the second lockdown. But something that jumped out at me, Liam, I don't know if you noticed, is that Boris, they're quoting him as saying, I don't care if the bodies pile up, we're not having another bloody lockdown. Now, people, of course, are appalled by that, you know, rather robust and perhaps insensitive turn of phrase. But I thought from Planet Normal's point of view, I found it really quite encouraging that Boris was actually pushing back against the scientists telling him that he needed to lock down. And one of the things that's been said this week is, you know, how dreadful he resisted the opportunity to have a circuit breaker in the autumn. But if we look at the figures for Wales, which did have a circuit breaker, it made no difference at all. So I was rather pleased because I thought that, you know, Boris had become the creature of witty and valence and is just sort of, you know, wheeled out as a sort of glove puppet. But I think it's quite interesting that his instincts are still to have a a freer society. What did you think? It is interesting and it may be handy to have that notion knocking around there in his back pocket, if you like, as and when we learn more and more about the scientific efficacy of lockdowns, because there is more and more academic evidence growing, people putting their head above a parapet saying, actually, lockdown may not have been nearly as effective as we thought it was in the first place. But I must admit, as a former member myself of the parliamentary lobby, that kind of coterie of political reporters that enjoy special access to our most senior politicians, Mm. it, it does make me kind of angry how they just fixate on this culture war of whether, you know, John Lewis is a nice place to buy your your furniture, this kind of ridiculous notion that Kerry Simmons might have spent some money on Farrow and Ball and where did the money come from? (laughs) Yes, the government has not covered itself in glory. There's is sleaze knocking around, the awarding of contracts, Mm. links between cabinet ministers and companies that are getting contracts. Of course, all that needs to be robustly reported. But what a contrast, Alison, the column inches, the airtime that's been devoted to a row between, you know, Boris Johnson's fiance and a former advisor compared to the relative lack of coverage for something that, again, you covered in your column, this astonishing scandal of injustice across Britain's post offices. Yes, I mean, let just me say a few words, because I think if there's any women listeners that um talking about the this absurd, you know, the flat decoration scandal. The facts are, Liam, is that there's an allowance, isn't there? I think it's 30 grand they get when they go in to redecorate. Now, I'm sure you've been into Downing Street a few times. I've been in a few times. It is so tatty. It's an absolute disgrace. It's like a boarding house in Ramsgate, isn't it? it I mean, oh, oh, I mean, if, if you had a through the keyhole. I don't hole. like Ramsgate. I actually really like <laughs> Ramsgate. <laughs> you don't go to Ramsgate for the decor, do you? 
You go there for the wonderful people. The carpets are like walking on mushrooms. It's practically damp. I'm no doubt there's absolute, you know, masses of mice. You wouldn't be surprised to have the borrowers <laughs> living under the skirting board. <laughs> the borrowers with little Chinese bugging devices chipped into them. <laughs> yes, chipped into the thing. I am not for extravagance in public life, as you know, but I do think we've got a slightly odd mentality about our leaders. Boris has got to pay for his own pizza if he's working till 3am. I mean, sorry, I, I do think we could be a little bit more grown up about this. This is the home of the First Lord of the Treasury. You know, it's not a down at heel boarding house in Ramsgate, much though we love Ramsgate. So I think Carrie's gone in, classic woman. Oh, you know, let's have something lovely here. Let's have some curtains. It's it's a big space. <laughs> Boris probably looks at the bill. You can imagine, can't you? Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm so you know. glad you're using this line of argument and not me. <laughs> no, I'm just telling you what's happened in our house. I, you know, we just we just draw a veil over you know the, the paint samples that arrive. I personally think that there should be some sort of trust. You know, I mean, when the American president goes into the White House, they're not sort of like having to pass the hat round to sort of get new curtains. So so there's a bit of a penny pinching, and as you've said, I think there are so many more important things at the moment that we should be worrying about. And we're hearing, Alison, just as we're recording, that the Electoral Commission is in fact going to investigate Boris Johnson's flat renovations now. But let's talk about this post office scandal. On Friday, we saw the Court of Appeal quashing the convictions of 39 former post office workers. And and that, just to set it in context, that's the largest number ever affected by a miscarriage of justice in the UK. Astonishing. And the fight is going to go on for at least 700 more postmasters. And it's about as bad as it could be. I mean, readers can get the background in your column, but just, just quickly... This is sort of a software system that sub-postmasters used that the post office insists they used, and it turned out that the software system, Horizon, was basically, it kept getting sums wrong, money kept going missing that didn't actually exist, but it was registered as missing. So sub-postmasters were accused by the post office and convicted and went to jail. And you've got some incredible stories in your, your column of post office workers who went to jail pregnant because of this miscarriage of justice, had kids in jail, families broke up, people freaked out, obviously, lives never upturned, never to be corrected, can never get those years back. And throughout this all, you had the CEO of the post office sort of floating above the fray, awarded a a CBE. I mean, quite astonishing. Yes, this woman, Paula Venels, who was ordained in the Church of England. I mean, I did write about the class of person she comes from, Liam. I mean, it's literally this sort of entitled people, you know, often of no apparent talent. I said that, you know, one of the gilded people in public life seems to float frictionlessly from one incredibly well-upholstered berth to the next. Paula Venners was appointed CBE in 2019 for her services in turning... When the, the post court case around, was pending. When the court case was pending. For turning the post office around. Well, yeah, great. You know, CBE for putting several hundred innocent people in jail. I mean, absolutely kind of monstrous. And, and I was struck. I mean, the judge in the appeal was absolutely withering. I mean, you know, he called it an affront to the public conscience. But I was struck, Liam, by the solicitor, Neil Hudgel, who was representing 29 of the post office workers. He said that the post office not only turned a blind eye to the failings in its hugely expensive IT system, but positively promoted a culture of cover-up and subterfuge in the pursuit of reputation and profit. They readily accepted that loss of life, liberty and sanity for many ordinary people as a price worth paying in that pursuit. Have you ever heard a more chilling statement? Astonishing. And Lord Justice Holroyd himself said in the court that the post office knew there were serious issues with this IT system, Mm. but they continued to claim that Horizon was, quote, robust and reliable and said the judge... They, quote, effectively steamrolled over any sub-postmaster who sought to challenge its accuracy. Now, you and I know, many of our listeners know, that these sub-postmasters, people that run local post offices in villages and small towns, they are, they're, they're not particularly in it for the money. 
They are the centre of their communities. They are the clearinghouse, not just for gossip, but for the welfare of people, looking out for people, helping them with their little bits and pieces of administration. Yeah. When those sub-post offices close, then hearts are ripped out of communities. The idea that they didn't notice that suddenly there was a lot more fraud at these post offices than they previously thought, the idea that they couldn't dare to challenge the decision to buy this expensive IT system and they needed to protect their procurement relationship with the company that provided it, rather than actually trusting their postmasters and actually getting down and auditing at the local level to see what was really happening. It's just outrageous. And there should be a public inquiry about this. There absolutely should be, given this huge miscarriage of justice. Let's just say, in fairness to Reverend Paula Venels, who isn't here to defend herself, obviously, uh, she has said sorry for these convictions and expressed regret. And I'm sure that she would argue that there was no wrongdoing Can on I her part. Can I just add, Liam, that I think a lot of people will ask what the very highly paid chief executive of the post office was doing when there was this huge upsurge in instances of post office workers apparently with their hand in the till, all of them claiming that they hadn't taken the money and furthermore, no evidence that, 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 that any money had been stashed away by any of them. Now, that there is a review of this miscarriage of justice which is going to report in the summer but the remit is really quite distressingly narrow. The review is just going to be looking into establish a clear account of the failings of the Horizon IT computer system. And it's also going to assess whether you're going to love this, Liam. Lessons have been learned at the post office. Deputy heads must roll. <laughs> very, very small heads of frontline troops who can't defend themselves must roll. I think I think I speak probably speak for thousands of Planet Normal listeners that I'll say that we're absolutely sick of sodding lessons being learnt, what we want to see is some people who were be responsible for hun possibly hundreds of innocent men and women having their lives trashed and going to jail. One of the most horrendous situations you could possibly imagine. So we don't want lessons to be learnt. We want a full public inquiry and we want the guilty people to be made to go through what those innocent postmasters and postmistresses went through. Hi, listeners, it's Barney Gordon here, popping into this podcast to tell you all about another Telegraph series called Barney Gordon's Mad World. It's a podcast in which I chat to household names and unsung heroes about their mental health, from Stacey Solomon to therapists and doctors on the front line. We talk about looking after ourselves as we heave ourselves out of lockdown and remind you that it's totally normal to feel weird. Search Mad World wherever you usually download your podcasts. Last week, we interviewed former Foreign Secretary Dr David Owen, one of the original Gang of Four who broke the mould of British politics in the early 1980s. You can listen to him and all our previous guests on the Planet Normal Archive. This week, Alison, to guide us through the first 100 days of the Biden presidency, a milestone reached this week, and to inspire us more generally, you've invited a close friend of this podcast to stow away with us to Planet Normal, another of the Telegraph's best-loved writers. That's right, Liam. Janet Daly is one of my own journalistic heroines. Listeners will know Janet from her superb column in the Sunday Telegraph, magisterial column every week, and also as a, a panellist on Radio 4's The Moral Maze. What they might not know is Janet was born in the United States. She was educated at Berkeley. She was a bit of a student revolutionary, which she'll tell us about. She came to the UK in 1965 as a postgraduate and she taught philosophy at various universities until she became a journalist in 1989, first for The Independent and then The Times and now for The Daily and ultimately The Sunday Telegraph. She's married to a Brit has two adult daughters and, and four grandchildren. And Janet became a UK citizen in 1986. So after Boris said last week that it wasn't the vaccinations that were helping to, to control COVID, it was lockdown. I began by asking Janet Daly, how the hell do you account for the government's handling of what's happening with the pandemic now? Well, that particular move was so bizarre 
It was positively surreal. I cannot for the life of me understand what possessed him to say such a thing. First of all, it was wrong, factually. Second, it was completely illogical. It was suicidal politically. Here he'd achieved this enormous, miraculous, sort of unbeatable, world-beating production of vaccines and dissemination of vaccines. And I was absolutely furious about it because he was trashing not only his own political achievement, but the achievement of all those hundreds of thousands of people, the NHS people, the volunteers, the very, very responsible public who signed up in droves to take these vaccinations. He was telling them that that was all for nothing. Can we come back to your very interesting political evolution? You you were born in the United States, uh, educated at, at Berkeley, where you were part of the free speech movement, which which gave birth to the international student revolution in, in the 1960s. What what was the family? You've just said the grandparents came over after the Russian Revolution. My par- my grandparents came over to escape from the pogroms. In 19, about 1905, they arrived at Ellis Island. Um, so, the, but they were my grandmother was a sewing machine operator in the the Jewish rag trade, and um, and became a union activist and a communist a member of the Communist Party. Um, and it, but my father, that generation, uh, were not at all. <laughs> I mean, they were they were kind of liberal Democrats. You know, but ended up, I think he, my father probably ended up voting Republican later on. Um, and they were certainly completely convinced capitalists, you know, but it was, it was just an interesting progression through. I mean, my father always used to say that the, the communist gene had skipped a generation, you know, and that I was, I was the inheritor of my grandmother's sort of political convictions. But I, I the, the Berkeley free speech movement, was a big formative event in my life. Um, it was, I mean, we, 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 as you say, I mean, we, we invented what became the international student revolution and it was much more constitutionally sound than people now think of it. People think of the, the hippie thing that followed in the Ber- in Berkeley in the early 1970s. That was quite a different thing. I mean, we were quite, puritanical Marxists, really, uh, and or not even Marxists. I mean, it was it was it was legitimized by the fact what happened was that the there were a lot of students who were active in the civil rights movement in Berkeley, and they were demonstrating against businesses in Oakland, which were discriminating against black employees, refused to hire black employees. So the 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 organize the sorry the owners of those businesses in Oakland, this is how it happened. This is this is how it went down. Actually, got in touch with the regents at the University of California at Berkeley and said, "This has got to stop. You've got to put a stop to your students cre- creating all this disruptive protest around our supermarkets and our businesses." And they did, and they clamped down on all political activity on campus. You couldn't invite a speaker, you couldn't hold a meeting, you couldn't even wear a badge, L- literally. That is, that is what it was. They banned freedom of speech, effectively, which is constitutionally guaranteed in America on, for anybody who lived and worked on the campus, the University of California at Berkeley campus. So you can imagine what happened. Um, there was a, the, one of the students who was a, a political, I think a civil rights worker, was giving a speech in the ordinary way, uh, as they did um, in the quad in at Berkeley, and he was arrested by the campus police, and he was put in, in a police car, whereupon the students spontaneously, I was there, so I know this is genuinely spontaneous, mobbed the car and refused to allow it to leave. And it was held there for two days. And in the meantime, various students climbed up on top of this police car and gave speeches saying how outrageous this was. You couldn't deny the whole population of the, the whole student population of the University of California at Berkeley, their constitutional right to free speech and freedom of assembly. And that was the beginning of the free speech movement. And when we marched in to occupy the administrative building, Sproul Hall, Joan Byers stood on the stairs singing, we shall overcome. It's not, that's not the kind of memory that you forget. That's not the kind of thing you forget. Um, and it was it was the beginning of what you what I would say was the legitimate protest, and the free free speech was the issue, and freedom of political assembly and association. 
it became all kinds of other things as it spread around the world. Um, and it, and it was eventually sort of turned into something that I wouldn't want to have anything to do with. Um, but it, the, the beginnings of it were pretty dramatic and pretty unforgettable. Well, that brings us up to date. But let, let, let's just come back to your progress. So you came to the UK in 1965 when you were still a Trotskyist, I must say, not a Marxist. No, Trotskyists are Marxists. They're not communists. Okay, all right. You, okay, you're a Marxist and forward slash Trotskyist. You taught philosophy at various universities. You married uh, the lovely Michael Daly and had two daughters. Now, in the 1980s, you were you were still a member of the Labour Party in Hornsey, North London. What made you move from the left to the right? Was there, was there a Damascene conversion? The Labour Party in Hornsey, <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn. Um, no, I mean, it was, it was I, I moved um, after the 1970s when I saw what Marxist labour unions, trade unions were doing to the country and the economy. And it was, you know, Thatcherism, I, in a sense, I my decision was that, first of all, that free market economics was delivering mass prosperity on a scale that was unprecedented in human history, as opposed to command economies and totalitarian communism, and that um, the, the, the working class people, for, for whom I still have very considerable sympathies and identified with, were much better served by Thatcherite economics than by Marxist economics. And I was particularly disgusted by, well, the outright Trotskyism of the Labour Party in Hornsey, uh, where Jeremy Corbyn was the chairman of the Education Committee, and he shut down the schools and locked my kids out of their schools in the 1970s in solidarity with the, uh, in 1979, the winter of 1979. But um, I, I, was, I was disgusted by even the traditional Labour Party patronizing of the working class the idea that you telling people to stay where you are and we'll look after you it became apparent and of course tony blair recognized this when margaret thatcher swept through working class constituencies people did not want to be talked to like that they wanted somebody to say you can do this you 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 can be as self-reliant and self-determining and productive as anybody in the society you don't have to sit there passively and accept what we want to do to you. Uh, and that was really when my politics changed. It changed in the 80s. And I, and I became convinced that Thatcherism and the self-determination that free market economics could bring was much better for working class people, not to mention middle class people, um, than the kind of patronizing, paternalistic, even not Marxist, but centre-left politics. A lot of my friends were moving the same way. <laughs> some weren't, some weren't, but um, an awful lot of them did see the light. And this particularly happened in America, particularly. A lot of people who were on the left moved to the right. People I'd known who were connected to the Berkeley Free Speech Movement uh, famously made that move. Because it, it was Reagan in America, you know, Thatcher in this country. And there were an awful lot of people who saw the light at about the same time. As someone who grew up in the land of the free, did you ever think you'd live to see the day when Abraham Lincoln is now described as a white supremacist? And oh, major I mean, that, what's happening in America is just insane. I mean, well, uh, America cancel, has... You know, this cancel culture, Mark Twain, even John Locke, you know, great, oh, great know. philosopher it's, it's, uh... and hero of free speech. These people for basically minor dis misdemeanors decades, if not centuries ago. What's, go what's going on, Janet? The thing you have to understand about the United States, and I do think that a lot of the cancel culture stuff here is borrowed from the United States, is that it's a, an, I've written about this too, it's a, it's a nation of displaced people who are profoundly insecure. The reason that America has periodic witch hunts, McCarthyism, you know, and this current one, is because people really have lost the sense of home. You know, um, they, they are, at least, if not themselves, they are descended from people very rarely more than a couple of generations removed from 
homelands that they've never seen. Um, they don't know where they belong or who they belong to. You see this repeatedly, even in the popular culture. Um, you know, kind of Disney characters who are set trying to find their way home and nobody even knows where home is. I mean, this is very hard for Europeans to understand. I mean, I most of the people, most of the people, not all, but many of the people that one meets in, in British life have come from families where they have lived this is particularly true in the more parochial parts of Europe or in Ireland, where the families have lived there for hundreds of years, for 10 and 12 generations. There's virtually nothing like that in the United States. And I mean, all the self-determination and opportunity that that represents has to be balanced against, really, I can say this, you know, as a, a former American, the, the existential uncertainty, the 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 loss of a sense of rooted identity. Uh, and so America has these periods of absolute self-lacerating insanity, and it transports them around the world, and we get a kind of modified, half-hearted version of it. But in America, it's visceral, and it's to do with the very the nature of the society. I mean, the American experiment has been a success. You know, it's given people prosperity and opportunity that would have been inconceivable very often in their home countries. But it's been at a really pretty terrible price in terms of psychological insecurity and instability. And somehow the system with the written constitution and all of that manages to survive it all. But it can be pretty awful to live through it. Tomorrow, it's 100 days since Joe Biden became president. That's traditionally seen as quite a significant milestone. After Trump, Biden was supposed to usher in this new era of boring bipartisanship. I mean, the, the, the figures aren't totally supporting that. I mean, divisiveness still seems to be there with a very tiny percentage of Republicans thinking that he's doing a good job. What do you think? How, 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 how well do you think he's doing so far? He doesn't seem to know whether he is the reincarnation of Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt or a, a Hillary Clinton type identity, you know, identity politics. I mean, he's he's not a far left politician of the kind that does exist now in the Democratic Party. He seems to be trying to create the kind of unity that Franklin Roosevelt managed to create around the reinvention of the state. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt did an awful lot of not only infrastructure building, but real sort of welfare state stuff that now would be anathema even to a lot of center-left people in America. But he he's also got all tied up in this identity politics stuff, which is absolutely typical of what I was just describing. The, the need to find yourself as part of a group, as part of an, uh, an identity that you, can, that you can use to circumscribe this kind of terrible uncertainty, this, this existential confusion. That's the reason, really, that identity politics has become so strong in America, because there was always that undertone in American life of emotional insecurity and the feeling that you somehow have to show that you belong. It's not, as, you, as, as it's often purported to be, a strongly individualistic country. It's a profoundly conformist country. And the, the social conformity is shocking to a lot of people I know who've gone there to live or to study. The need to be seen as part of the group, that's um, much more manifest in America than it is in most Western European societies. And I think that he's got very tangled up in that political philosophy while he's trying to institute economic reforms. And I think actually given the dynamism of American capitalism and the way that it's bound to come roaring back after the lockdowns and the pandemic, I think he's making a mistake. I think, you know, the American economy will recover. And the divisiveness that exists between the Republicans and the Democrats is so deeply rooted now that I don't think any hope, there's any hope of really bipartisan cooperation. I think that business of reaching across the aisle, as they used to call it, in the Houses of Congress, that's gone. Uh, and I don't know if it will ever come back. It used to be said that American politics was so conservative that 
you could fit both the Democrats and the Republicans within the moderate wing of the Tory party. Well, that's not true anymore. <laughs> that's really not true anymore. No. Biden did actually, you know, before the jury reached its verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial for the now murder of George Floyd, I mean, Biden actually said, I'm praying the verdict is the right verdict. It's overwhelming in my view. I mean, is there a danger that he, the president, is seen as capitulating to the aggressive far left of the Democratic Party? Oh, I don't, mm, I, I had a problem with that. I don't think it was far left to say, I mean, I was praying for that verdict too. I'm not president, but, you know, I mean, it was... It was irregular for him to say that at the point that he did say it, but he only said it, if you remember, he made a point of saying that he only said it once the jury had been sequestered. I think he had to put himself on record as saying that because it was a very significant event. Um, the verdict in that trial was tremendously important. And I think he knew full well what the verdict was going to be. And he wanted to put himself on record as having as he says, um, prayed for it. And I think given his, his serious religious convictions, I think that was probably just true. That was a statement of truth. You talked about the sort of these spasms of, you know, the sort of cancel culture, the woke culture uh, crossing the Atlantic. That very much happened after George Floyd's murder took place with a, by a cop in Minneapolis and yet came over here. We've seen metropolitan police and footballers taking the knee in Britain, a very un-British spectacle to some people's eyes. What do you think about this attempt to elide America's experience of racism with the British experience? I mean, they're extremely different, aren't they? I'll say they are totally different. I, I think that's it's rather absurd, frankly. I don't think they even know many of these people. What the significance of taking the knee was the original football players who did it were refusing to stand for the national anthem. That was the point of taking the knee, because in America you stand for the national anthem. And it's quite, you know, it's it's a sacrilege not to. But the American racist experience, I mean, I was born in Boston, I grew up in New York, and then I spent the last six years in California, Los Angeles and San Francisco. This was not Mississippi, you know, it was not Alabama. And yet it was profoundly, all those places were at that time, profoundly racist and profoundly racially segregated in a way that just is not the case here. I, I am always stunned with admiration, actually, uh, by the degree to which British society has accommodated um, both immigrant groups and and in indigenous black populations. I mean, the the proliferation, for example, the fastest growing minority group now in this country are mixed race children, mixed race people, and that's because they come from the unions of black and white people, uh, black and white families, mixed race families, mixed race parties in restaurants. Uh, when I'm whenever I'm in America, I'm struck by the fact that. Going to a restaurant in New York, or particularly in Washington, Washington is horribly segregated, you don't see mixed race parties, you don't see black and white people sitting in restaurants together. I, rem I, was, I was going to say to you, my first visit to the States was back in the early 1990s, and um, uh, I was in New York, and I was you know, walking around, having a lovely time, doing that thing you do, thinking, gosh, I'm on a movie set. Um, and there was something wrong and I couldn't put my finger on it at all. And at that point, I was living in North London, where, of course, there were enormous numbers of mixed race families. And I suddenly realised, Janet, none of the buggies, none of the strollers contained mixed race babies. And I thought, my God, what is going on in this country? And it, it, it really is. A, we, we can't stress. I mean, I, Liam and I on the podcast, we, you know, on Planet Normal, we talk a lot about this. This country, for all its manifold faults, has not been bad, terrible at integration, has it? Oh, not at all, no. And not just by comparison to the United States, which is one of the worst, but in comparison to France. I mean, if you want to see racial problems, uh, I mean, the, the, the periphery, you know, around the, 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 the uh, neighborhoods around Paris, which have become ghettos for sort of North African black people. That is horrendous, you know, and the degree of, what can you say, comfortableness with the mixed race phenomenon in this country is splendid. It's superb. Um, and, you know, traveling on the tube, going into restaurants, going into shops, you just 
are so accustomed to a multiracial environment and to everybody being relaxed about that. Of course, occasionally it goes wrong, you know, and there are riots in Brixton or whatever and terrible things happen. But but it's so, by comparison to the United States, it is so rare and so much of the population is is now relaxed and accepting about this. I think it's an incredible tribute to the British. And I think this does have to do, paradoxically, with the colonial experience. You know, so many people in this country either have had families or associations with the colonial experience, and they feel completely comfortable, particularly with people from the Indian subcontinent, for example, or from, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's, uh, there is something irreconcilable about American racism, and I think that it is terrible to try to imply that all white populations have that same problem because they don't. Uh, it's something quite unique to the American national culture. And I, it breaks my heart, actually, to see after eight years of a black president, to see how many unarmed black people are still being shot by police. You know, it just, I, what can you say? I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it seems to be beyond any legal or constitutional attempt to heal that problem. Janet, fantastic. I could talk to you for hours. I hope you'll come back to Planet Normal. Can, can I just say on behalf of the people of the United Kingdom that we were very, very lucky that the Trotskyist migrated here in 1965 and has been delighting us with her words of conservative wisdom, hooray, for, for many decades and, and long may it continue. Janet, thank you so much for talking to Planet Normal. She's a class act, Alison. I think we're lucky to have her at the Telegraph and indeed in the UK. I thought that was one of the best descriptions, Liam, of the difference between the States and us. And something we've talked about on Planet Normal, isn't it, is the fact that there's a certain breed of leftist at the moment who, you know, want to brand us as, as racist. And I think Janet just gave a, a very eloquent description of why that's inappropriate. And I thought there was a fascinating description about the States with its, something I'd never thought about really, its existential lack of certainty a lack of rootedness that makes them more conformist than us. We think of them as the land of blazing individuals, but that really chimes with something I thought that they they do like to kind of self-reinforce with each other in groups. And that has, as Janet said, made the identity politics, you know, very akin to what Arthur Miller described so brilliantly in The Crucible, Nathaniel Hawthorne in The Scarlet Letter, you know, um, a great tradition of these sort of hysterical Puritan purges. And I thought it was a brilliant analysis. Did you? I did. And I've lived in the States quite a lot. And she really put her finger there on an interesting thought about, you know, many of my closest friends in the world are Americans. And I'm really looking forward to talking to them about this, how there is such conformity amidst the rugged individualism and obviously the driving entrepreneurial dynamism. And it's interesting you mentioned Arthur Miller's Crucible because Janet herself, of course, mentioned McCarthyism mm. and she framed the current kind of culture wars, you know, the outrage at people using certain phrases, the huge emotional ferment of identity politics. She made a parallel, didn't she, with McCarthyism, which then leads back via the Crucible to those witch trials in Salem and so on. A really fabulous contribution, I think, to Planet Normal from somebody who straddles the US and the UK with such authority as a commentator, in my view. And talking of cultural commentary, of course, Planet Normal is where the world flocks to hear <laughs> about film criticism. <laughs> We've just had the 93rd Academy Awards. And as you pointed out again in your column, the TV audience for the Oscars plummeted this year it's down from almost 45 million 20 years ago to just 10 million worldwide in 2021 an all-time low why is it Alison that the world's tuning out of the Oscars well one thing Liam we can pat ourselves on the backs because we got the best movie best actress best director right didn't we with Nomadland they got three didn't they best picture best director best actress Frances McDormand 
And it is a wonderful film, but it's a small film, very haunting, sad about, you know, a woman who's been affected by the 2008 recession and lives out the back of a of a white van. I loved it, but I can absolutely see, you know, this is not Mad Max, Fury Road or Titanic or any of the sort of James Cameron, Steven Spielberg pictures that people used to absolutely love. Or even La La Land, a bit of escapism. Well, first of all, the ceremony, which is held in the sort of L.A. train station, you know, cue train crash metaphors. <laughs> the first presenter was Regina King, the director, and she immediately got up on the stage, tripped over and announced that had the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial, you know, the terrible George Floyd murder gone the other way, she'd have swapped her presenter's stilettos for marching boots. And I'm thinking, you know, you're starting this great entertainment evening, you know, with a kind of name check of George Floyd. And I think enormous number of people just switch off. We're not interested in what these people preaching to us, you know, it's show business, it's not show and tell business. And and you're recalling the sort of Ricky Gervais rant a few years ago. <laughs> Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes yeah, <laughs> saying, look, no one cares about what you think. So come up here and get your little award. Most of you have spent less time at school than Greta Thunberg. <laughs> Ricky Gervais, I mean, absolutely phenomenal. Treading that fine line between absolute offence and outrage and cutting edge cultural commentary. A bit like Planet Normal, Alison. Well, we hope so. I mean, th th there are signs, I think, that the Academy of Motion Pictures knows it's in terrible trouble because last year it was contemplating a new category of best popular movie. Now, just think about that, Liam. With Hitchcock's Rear Window or Spielberg's E.T., the best movie should be popular. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that it's, it's a popular medium. And if cinema can't make films that millions of people absolutely love. And my favourite section of the Oscars is always the In Memoriam section where you get glorious clips from... You, you know, just like Gregory Peck, don't you? Oh, I know. A bit oh, dishy. Gregory Peck, I know. <laughs> you, you, you claim that every good-looking man is Irish, don't you? I'm not... Is, was Gregory His mother Peck was Irish. Irish. His mother was Irish. <laughs> of course was. I don't claim it. It's just true. Well, but... but but there was that sort of sense, you know, I mean, Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart was, you know, was a Republican. Obviously, Ronald Reagan was famously a Republican, but they didn't, you know, they didn't stuff their politics in your face. There's actually one lovely film, the Korean film, actually, which did very well, which I really love, Minari. I really recommend people look at it because you think, oh, God, here we go again. Korean family comes to the States, lives in a field, everything's dreadful. In fact, it's an absolute celebration of American integration. This Korean family is warmly welcomed by its white Christian neighbours in Arkansas. And I really loved that film. And, and I loved it because it, it wasn't saying, you know, aren't we all hateful? Don't we all have to bow down and bare our breasts and say how dreadful we are? I totally agree with your thesis, Alison, that Hollywood needs to remember it's in the entertainment business. It doesn't mean it always needs to be vapid and sugar-coated. It can deal with serious subjects, but it also needs to deal with entertainment. And I haven't seen Nomadland. It's not available to mere mortals in the UK yet. I'm not married to possibly the world's <laughs> leading film critic. But you did kindly send me a, the book Nomadland, didn't you? A little crumb off your cultural filmic table. Oh. And, I, and I read it in a day. I really enjoyed the book. It is like Steinbeck. I think it is a very important movie. I do think it's astonishing that Chloe Zhao, a young Chinese-born UK and US-educated woman, has won as Best Director. And of course, Francis McDormand is a legend. And I actually think Nomadland is going to move the economic needle because the way it portrays uh, lower middle-class America having to hit the road and live in vans, particularly a lot of older women, and they generate their own culture. There's lots of love and camaraderie and laughs and resilience that was throughout the book, and I'm sure it's in the film as well. But it's basically, they're on the road because they're poor, because society, the system, means they can no longer make a living, they have no retirement savings. Mm. And in that sense, I think Nomadland is a very serious injection of economic reality into the cultural mainstream. Now it's time for our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful, fantastic, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send each week to myself and Liam at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. This is from Chloe, not her real name. 
I'm so distressed I need to share this with someone. As you've both become friends in every sense to your listeners, I'll share it with you. Our company is US-based, but I'm here in the UK. We provide learning resources to schools around the world. Our whole mantra is to help people be the best they can. At a staff meeting on Zoom, I suggested a blog post about Prince Philip to share his amazing life story, his dedication to the young, the DFE award, his conservation projects, his thinking outside the mould, his support of the arts. I'd read in the Telegraph articles from Matt Ridley, Prue Leith and New Allison and was going to put together a tribute to share with the educators who follow us around the world. The staff were incredulous with my suggestion. I was told he was a racist, a white privileged man, that writing a post extolling him would not be taken well in the US. When I started telling my co-workers about the good that Prince Philip had done, they sat there stony-faced and unmoved. I'm sharing my personal sense of grief that people who are supposedly liberal can be so judgmental and rude about others, incapable of standing in their shoes and asking, what would I have achieved in a similar situation? I want Philip to be admired, and I'm so upset my colleagues are unconvinced. Chloe. That's one problem, Liam. I find myself talking with friends about, you know, who have children my sort of age, you know, children in their teens or in their 20s, is how you protect them from this judgmentalism of people like Prince Philip, you know, who was by any stretch of the imagination a, a remarkable man. This is from Joe, Romy, Vicky and Stuart. The recommendation to visit Planet Normal has spread through our family, including our 77-year-old mother, who is now a big fan. It seems strange to reflect on this time last year, but with life becoming more and more absurd, I'm just thankful that my father is no longer around to live through it. This time last year, my parents were locked down. My mother was my father's carer. Lockdown was the final straw for his dementia. His deterioration during this time was incredible. Routines were shattered and they were now confined to their house and garden. My dad could still walk, but only for short distances. He simply couldn't understand why they were not allowed out and why he was unable to see his beloved grandchildren. Zoom came to the rescue, but afterwards dad would wander around the house looking for us all. The stress on the home carers has been immense. The strain on them during lockdown has simply been forgotten. Six weeks into the first lockdown, my Houdini-like father broke free from his shackles and went for one last walk down the village while mum was gardening. Unfortunately, he fell and had a nasty bump to the head. Mum was called and the ambulance arrived. My father was taken away to hospital and was not allowed to be accompanied by my mother. So I, as a mum, could take my children to A&E, but a carer for a dementia patient who had less communication skills than my eight-year-old triplets wasn't allowed to be accompanied into hospital. After just two hours in hospital, we got a call to say that someone could come and collect my dad. No phone call was made to my mother to try and assess his base health line. When my mother arrived at the hospital, he was wheeled out. My father could walk pre-fall. He wasn't talking very well. He could speak pre-fall. And no discharge papers or update was given of his condition. It turns out that the threat of COVID was more important than the dignity of care that my dementia-suffering father and my carer mother deserved. When I arrived at my parents' house the next morning, it was perfectly clear that my dad was not okay. An ambulance was called and he was taken away on his own to a different hospital. We were called to say that he had an extensive bleed to the brain due to his fall and we were now looking at end-of-life care. The hospital staff were incredible and they bent the rules so that my mother, brother, sister and I could all say goodbye properly and be there when dad took his last breath. Our father would have been very happy because as a result, we came together finally one last time as daughters and son, as brother and sister and as grandparents and grandchildren. I work in the tourism industry, specialising in travel to sub-Saharan Africa. The pandemic has been truly devastating for the countries that we support, but that's a different story. Keep it up, Planet Normal. And on behalf of all of my family, thank you for sharing the other side of the news. So sorry to hear about your dad, Joe, but lovely, Liam, that we've got um, a multi-generational audience there. Isn't that wonderful? So all the best to Joe and her family, particularly her dad. And this is from Barney. Planet Normal keeps me sane. 
I frequently wake in the early hours of a Thursday morning and feel excited to listen to your podcast. It features intelligent, rational conversation from a planet that feels far away. Alison and Liam are a compassionate, sympathetic pair. You don't know her, Barney. Who try to jolly us along in these desperate times. I love the interesting guests, followed by readers' emails that can make you laugh out loud or bring you to tears. Please keep going with your podcast. It's kept me going during this god-awful year. David declares June the 21st will be MRD Day. No, not Mandy Rice Davis, he said, for those of us old enough to remember her. Mask Removal Day, June the 21st. (laughs) He would say that, wouldn't he? (laughs) So that's it from Planet Normal for another week. Our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Pearson. I think we're going to give it to Joe, Romy, Vicky and I think and Joe's won. I think she's got it, hasn't jo- she? I think Coming Joe's up on the won. inside there. <laughs> <laughs> Alison and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released, between 11am and 12 noon. We'll put the link to that article in the episode description. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view... Thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bajard and Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Theodora Leludis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.